This is episode 18 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, September 13th, 2011. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And so uh, we're, uh, we're lazy. We are. But we weren't because we were thinking ahead. Well, I don't know if people want to hear me ramble on again like they just did when we did the open foam episode. Well, it, that was a while ago, well, actually. That wasn't that long ago. But we have had a series of talks recently. A series of tubes? <laughs> no, a series of talks. A series of talks in the series of tubes? Uh, and this is the last one we have. Uh, well, last one from Oscon. Do we have another? Never mind. We'll find out. We'll, fi- we'll find that out later. <laughs> um, to my knowledge, this is the last uh, the last talk we'll have for a little while. Well, I just finished when folks are hearing this. I just finished keynoting at Ohio Linux Fest. I was going to take the mic. Uh, see, uh, this is the time travel podcast pre-recording thing again. But by the time listeners hear this, I've got to announce it in last episode, I should have, that I would be keynoting at Ohio Linux Fest. Although I don't think anybody would have heard it on the Oddcast who didn't already know about Ohio Linux Fest and then would go because they heard it last episode. Right. Seems unlikely. Uh, but I will be, uh, or I will have been keynoting. So we can use the verb tense like the Checker's Guide. I will right. have been keynoting uh, at uh, Ohio Linux Fest. Well, but anyway, I think this... So I'm going to try to record that. Okay. I may have recorded that, as it turns what's out. So this, may what's be the title recording. of your talk? I'm, uh, I'm, it's the same title I used to use for my network services talk, uh, with software as a service is only the network Luddite free. Oh, which was on our show. Which was on the old show, correct. Yeah. It's, a, it's an updated version. I've added a couple of slides into it. Um, it's actually a much darker story now. <laughs> yeah. Everything's gotten worse. Uh, Identica's dying, you know. Because Google Plus, like lots of people who were oh, slowly moving to Ident- Identica. Well, See, I haven't been really that good at using Identica. I'm not really a, a microblogger. Well, it's actually really easy or for me to follow network. people in Identica now because so few people are still denting ah. there, at least from the free software world. The Google Plus has sort of taken over as the Interesting. default. Interesting. It's so really fast. It was really fa- well, and not thing just is, is, in our world is the thing. Well, yes, true, but particularly in the free software world because it was never really a Facebook thing like there weren't lots of free software people on facebook and so there were people on twitter and some of them were moving to identica but then google plus started and everybody seems to have moved there there's tons of like lots of these discussions as you know in the gnome community have happened on google plus yeah and so it's uh, it's very unfortunate a lot of people have left a uh, fab uh, for example has oh really identica for google plus yeah. i mean occasionally dense but there's no more fabalanche it's gone wow. it's done he, he dents like once a month. Now. So that means that probably the dents, the people that I follow, it's probably really dwindled. <laughs> it's very, it's very, very easy to read Identica now, uh, but that's not a good thing. Right, right. But anyway, I mean, I think this talk. Like, it's you... me and Fontana arguing about stuff now. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, anyway, I thought this talk that you gave at Oscon is, is is a good talk to give because it it also is an updated talk, but I think it's um it's it's the best version of it that I've heard. Um, that I've heard you give, and I think it's um, it's really useful. So yeah, and and there is speaking of Identica, there is an Identica thread that uh, was live denting by Fontana during the talk, and then there was other stuff said in the thread later. But only read it if you want to um, also read about Deep Space Nine. That's true because <laughs> because well that's the lights that Fontana was complaining about uh, about why his talk was bad because there was very very bright lights. 
in the room, and it made me think of. And which I think was the same room that Aaron and I gave our talk in too, because yeah. it, we we spoke after Fontana. So you think about, and you had a good turnout for this talk, considering it was the last day. It was like, very, the room was full. It was very good, con- considering it was the second to last talk at Ozcon. Yeah, a, a second to last track. I mean, as far as the tracks go, so it was. Yeah, I was surprised. I was not expecting that many people, which was good. Yeah, so, definitely. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's so. I, and this is. I, I don't think I was too affected too much by the lights. I've been in stage situations with those heavy lights, but it did feel like the there are four lights thing from uh, Next Gen, the Chains of Command. Episode, I don't remember that awesome. one, but okay. Um, yeah, I'll remind you uh, while we listen to the talk. All right. Okay, so it's 11. I think I'll get started. Ready? So I have been doing GPL enforcement for a very long time. In fact, I have been proposing a talk or one similar to this one uh, for five years to OSCON, sometimes with my colleague Aaron Williamson, sometimes myself, and they have been rejecting it time and time again. They finally accepted it this year uh, and put me in the last session on the last day. So I'm grateful that you all stayed, and I'm really appreciative that you're here. Uh, O'Reilly does not want you to hear, or would rather you not hear this, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's a really important history, uh, issue. I want to start a little bit about my history and how I ended up doing this. So I first started working with the Free Software Foundation as a volunteer in 1997, and in 1999, uh, Richard Stallman said, oh, you're doing all this great volunteer work. Could you help us with checking source code of someone who's violated the GPL trying to come back into compliance? And so I worked on my first GPL violation case in the late 90s. I was offered a job at the Free Software Foundation doing a variety of different things. Initially, as uh, Richard Stallman's uh, personal assistant, uh, promoted directly from that to executive director. Bizarre to be promoted from personal assistant to in charge of the organization, but... Uh, that's how it happened. And so I worked there until 2005, and I worked at uh, the Software Freedom Law Center, which is a legal services organization for nonprofit uh, open source and free software projects from 2005 to 2010. And now I'm the executive director of the Software Freedom Conservancy, and I'm also on the board of directors of the Free Software Foundation, which means that my two affiliations that I, curr- that I still have, or that are official affiliations, are with the two organizations, uh, two nonprofits that are still doing GPL enforcement in the world, only two that, of nonprofits that are doing it. And I went through and looked at what time I've spent on doing things. I keep fastidious records of where I spent my time. Now, I haven't spent the majority of my time on GPL enforcement, uh, since 1999, but I have spent the plurality, so it's the largest single thing that I've spent time on since 1999. And from my point of view, because of this, I've started to look at free software uh, through the eyes of a GPL enforcer. Uh, and this is both a good and bad thing. Uh, it's a bad thing, for example, someone I used to work with at the Free Software Foundation said he didn't want to do GPL enforcement anymore because it, quote, made him think like a cop, and he didn't want to think like a cop, unquote. So you start to think about the free software community is basically divided into two groups. There's the permissive license folks, the Apache people, the uh, BSD 
communities where they use a certain amount of social pressure to get people to release their source code. Their licenses don't require that you do that, but you, if, for example, you don't release improvements to SSH, if Theo de Rot and his friends start emailing you saying you ought to do it, uh, they don't have any legal ability to force or require you to do it, but they just use social pressure. And there are the copyleft licenses, which do more than social pressure. There, of course, is social pressure involved. People, when they violate GPL, we all tell them they ought to do the right thing, and it's the good thing for the community. But the license require also that the code be made free as in freedom. So I'm talking about this latter thing, this times when we've used the GPL license in a way to require people to release source code because of its legal requirements that are written into the license. But I want to make clear that social pressure does, in fact, work. And I actually think social pressure ought to be the first thing you use. You ought to write to companies telling them they've made a mistake and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and ask them to release the source code and give you copies of it and copies to all their customers. And I think going to an enforcement action, actually going to the license and saying, you've infringed copyright and have failed to comply with the terms of the copyright license that you got this software under, ought to really be your last resort. But ultimately, like anything, like, like the US Constitution, the GPL is the legal framework of at least the copyleft community. It is the constitution of our beliefs and what we think they ought to embody in our society in a legalistic sort of way. And I think it is the detailed implementation of the general free software definition. It's the thing that gets to the details of what does it mean in sort of a formal sense to have the freedom to run the software, the freedom to improve it, the freedom to share it with other people, and the freedom to make improvements and then redistribute and share them with the community. That's what GPL embodies, and a bunch of legalese details of making sure that happens in every case where someone gets a copy of a GPL program. So it is our constitution, and the constitution ought to be upheld, in my view. So the GPL is first a document of theory, right? It has a text that you can read and you can study it in theory, how would this work? Well, it takes the copyright system, which is more or less internationally standardized around the world, uh, through Baron Convention, Karen and Aaron in their talk in this room yesterday talked about how copyright works around the world, but it's a relatively standard system of governance of expressions of works into tangible media, and that thing can be licensed because copyright law, and I'll use the US terminology since it's a US audience, governs the rights to copy, modify, and distribute anything that's expressed into a tangible medium and is copyrighted. So GPL is fundamentally a copyright license. It's granting permissions to do those things because those are all related to the four freedoms. The freedom to copy, share, modify, and distribute, well, you have to have those permissions to be able to do it. So the first thing the GPL does is grant those permissions, but it makes them conditional on ensuring that everybody else has the ability to improve and share the software and build it and modify it and so forth. And I'll talk more about those details later. And this is ultimately a hack of copyright because the way most companies and copyright holders use copyright is to restrict you from doing all that stuff. 
They tell you, oh, well, you don't have permission to distribute or copy or modify my works, and if you do that, I'm going to come after you. Well, we say, you do have that permission, and we want you to do it, but you have to make sure that the freedoms of free software are upheld when you do it. Um, and so the, we use the copyright system as the ability to require it. So the interesting thing that happens, I'll talk a little bit about this later, is when you violate the GPL, you lose your terms and rights to copy, modify, and distribute the software, and therefore you have no rights under copyright law to do those things with the software in question where you violated the GPL, and you have to work with the copyright holder to get those rights back, to get the GPL license granted back to you so you can again uh, be operating under GPL in compliance, of course. I'm going to hold questions to the end, Michael, if that's okay. Um, yeah, it's, I, I'll have the slides online. Um, so there's, that's the theory. That's just how it works in theory. In practice, you have to do something when somebody violates the GPL. And, of course, like I said, we should try the social pressure, but what if that fails? What if you've written to the company and told them about their violation? They just don't care. They just don't answer you. They just tell you to go away. All sorts of things like that have happened. What do you do next? Well, because you're working under copyright law, you have to do a copyright enforcement action. Um, and I am aware of the irony. This is what the MPA does as well when people share movies online. I, I don't like that much that I do a similar, although I don't think it's all that similar, but it can be compared to that activity. I'm enforcing copyrights when I do GPL enforcement. I believe it's for a good cause. I believe that what I'm using this tool for is to uphold some specific good rather than something bad. I think we, with copyleft, use the tools of the oppressive system, the copyright system, which usually is hurting people or making it difficult for them to do things they ought to be allowed to do to make sure that people can do the things we ought to allow them to do. But there is an amount of irony in there. So I'm pretty sure the first, so, so now I want to get into this history. This is, I promised history, and I'm going to give some. I, I've, I've looked historically, and I believe that GNU Emacs was the first program to be released under the GPL. Is that right, Richard Fontana? Do you? Proto-GPL, that's correct. There was this thing called the Emacs Public License, which was the original prototype for the GPL. And that, in fact, was the first program ever to be released and made available under a copyleft program. And it's funny because um, I made this slide, obviously, a long time ago, and this morning there was a story that Emacs itself is violating the GPL. I have a blog post about that. I, I, I was, if you didn't see me live down to the keynotes until it got to Karen's, it was because I was writing the blog post in response to that. So I didn't have time to change the slide, though. And in fact, the thing this morning, it's not that Emacs has violated the GPL, that the, the, the Emacs team is actually infringe somebody else's copyright. But they're fixing it, and that's what's really important. Social pressure is working right now, and there are Emacs developers fixing the source code base as we speak. Um, so social pressure worked in that case. Um, but there's never been a violation uh, that I know of of Emacs's own copyright. Uh, Emacs is making the mistake here, not, not somebody else making the mistake with regard to Emacs. So that brings us to the second copyleft program, which was GCC. Uh, now, this is a program. Uh, Emacs, generally, developers tend to use it. They tend to use it on their own computers, and they tend to use it in compliance with the GPL, et cetera. 
But GCC is something that proprietary software companies were really interested in because it was a C compiler that was easy to adapt to other targets and was really one of the first ones to be widely available to everyone that could do that. And so it ends up becoming, as far as I know in my research, the first time anyone violated the GPL. And there are people in the room who heard this talk before. So anybody in the room in the talk before, who hasn't heard this talk before want to guess who was the first GPL violator? You've heard this talk before, Richard, so, you, so I just excluded you. Well, but you can say it now. That is quite correct. Um, not at Apple, when he was at Next. So he had this great idea. He said, well, I've created this new language, Objective-C, uh, which I think I'm going to use for all my platforms. Uh, and Next was the first place he used it. It's still used today, as we know, and for the iPhone and other uh, Apple stuff. And he said, well, I don't want to write a compiler. And there's this thing called GCC. So I'll write a front end to GCC for it. But what I'll do is I'll release the front end only in object code. And then people can download GCC from the FSF and the GNU project. And they can build it and link it and, and just link in my object code. Well, in the end, we, we, I, we, I was involved with the FSF at this time. It was so long ago. The FSF discovered that this was going to happen. And in, enforcement action continued. And it's very hard, actually, to find online documentation of this GPL enforcement. And this is, in fact, the, I, I searched Usenet archives uh, for something about the violation. And this was the only thing I could find. Um, but I think this happened well after the situation was resolved because uh, there was an answer within a few days from Next. And I don't think they resolved this violation in merely a few days. I think that they had this answer canned and ready to be posted to Usenet if somebody ever brought this up. Uh, and I've asked uh, Richard Stallman, RMS, about this enforcement action because FSF did it, and he's made reference to it uh, obliquely in some of his essays. And I said, well, how did it all happen? What happened? Did you talk to Steve Jobs about it? He goes, I can't remember if I ever talked to Steve Jobs. And now I'm very, very glad that the FSF is led by someone who may have had a phone conversation at least with Steve Jobs and has absolutely no memory whether he did or he didn't. <laughs> Even I, being a free software advocate, I, if I ever talked on the phone with Steve Jobs, I'd remember it, and I probably would never forget it. Richard can't remember. He's like, I don't, maybe I did, I don't know. He's unsure. So it's really sort of lost in the, in the uh, annals of history, if you will, whether or not or how this GPL enforcement action happened. But it made this interesting thing occur, which is Steve Jobs learned what the GPL was and decided he never wanted it near him. And Apple, since Steve Jobs came back, has been on a systematic effort to get GPL'd stuff away from itself. They, are, they announced a few months ago they're going to be ditching Samba. They haven't yet, as far as I know, but they will be soon. And they are desperately trying to get away from their dependence on GCC. And they're, they're doing a rather insidious thing for it. They're funding LLVM just enough to make it good enough so that they can use it, in which, and as soon as it's good enough that they can use it for all their stuff, I'm sure, I'm quite sure, they're going to stop contributing substantially to LVM, take a proprietary fork internally. They're contributing to LVM now to entice other contributors, in my view, to start joining and helping LVM get better, and as soon as it's good enough for them to use, they'll do the same thing they did with BSD. They got BSD good enough they could use, and then they took it internal, and their changes are primarily proprietary. They want to do the same thing with the compiler. And there's also a lot of FUD out there about particularly GPLv3 from Apple because of this obsession Steve Jobs has with never touching GPL stuff again. So this was, there was a number of years after, that was back in the late 80s when that happened, 
So in the 1990s, it became very common to use the GNU utilities for various different Unix-like things, because they were better than all the defaults you got on proprietary Unix systems. They were, had more options, did more stuff. And a lot of tape backup systems in the 90s were based around GNU-TAR. And the companies would take the GNU-TAR and then incorporate it into a tape changer product. There's young people in the crowd, so I have to explain to you. So, so, so disk drives didn't used to be gigantic. And tape was substantially cheaper than disk drives back in the, back when you were in grade school or whatever. Um, and there used to be these, these tape library machines, right? They would have robot arms that would switch tapes and all this stuff. And this is how we backed up our stuff in, in up till the late 90s. Um, what's that? <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, you may have started before even that happened. I, when I came into the scene, there were already the robotic arms, but um, I didn't have one my first job, but other people, I knew other people who did, and I was jealous of them. Um, but yeah, I used to change the tapes myself initially. Um, but, but of course, GNU-TAR was the best thing to run things out to tape for, so all these like backup solutions where you get a box with a tape changer and a little computer attached to it, it would have GNU-TAR and it would be violating the GPL. Now, fortunately, sysadmins are a curious lot. I, was, I, I spent much of my career as a sysadmin, and Sysadmins like to say, what is this doing, and why is it doing it? And how can I make it stop? Because it's dumb. Um, this is the sysadmin mindset. So they were very good at noticing, doing strings on the mindset. Wait, this is GNU-TAR. Why can't I put my own GNU-TAR here? Where's my source code? And they would report violations to the FSF. And I did a number of these enforcement actions throughout the, late, the, the very late 90s and into the early 2000s. And in all the cases, the companies came into compliance. They got the source code out to the users, made sure they informed users who had previously gotten proprietary binaries made from GNU-TAR that they, in fact, shouldn't have been proprietary, and they should have been under GPL, and they gave them the source, except for one specific violator. Um, and this was the last time I enforced on GNU-TAR. It was in mid-2002. It was actually uh, at a Linux world, and uh, the lawyer for the company um, it, it sort of wanted to buy me lunch. He said, oh, you're in Linux world. I'm in San Francisco. Why don't I buy you lunch? Now, now you should always wor worry when a lawyer wants to buy you lunch. Um, and so I, uh, I went to lunch with him, and he, sa and he says, I said, well, we need to resolve this matter. You guys, you, uh, we know you're using tar. You're violating. I've told you this before. You've got to resolve it. He goes, yeah, we resolved it. We, t we wrote tar out of the product. And I went back and called our lawyers and said, let's sue them. They violated the license, and they never released the source code. And while the lawyer said, well, given that they're no longer infringing, given that they've taken it completely out of the product, they've written their own implementation of TAR that they, they did from scratch, and there's no active infringement going on, we can't really retroactively go into court, sue them, and then say, uh, we want them to go back. They're not infringing anymore, Your Honor, but we want the <laughs> for the infringement they did a long time ago, we want you to order them to release the source code. Um, it, it, it's possible we could succeed in that, but it was unlikely. Um, and in fact, what courts usually tend to do as a remedy for copyright infringement is give you two things. They give you some money, and there's various different calculations of the statute beyond the, sc statute beyond the scope of this talk, to, to, and Aaron and Karen touched on them briefly yesterday. So you saw their talk. Uh, you, you, you know some of that. And they also give a thing called an injunction. And there's various different ways you can get an injunction, which are, again, beyond the scope of this talk. But they will say, you may not distribute and do other things under governed under copyright law with this, these, person, th these people's copyrights anymore because you infringed. And we're going to grant those people some amount of money. That's the typical remedy that courts give you. And the interesting thing in this case and in, in some others, they gave us a de facto injunction. 
That company does not distribute GNU, car, GNU tar. I'm still to this day, I remind my colleagues at FCF every year or so, hey, remember that Mumble Mumble is not allowed to distribute GNU tar because we never restored their rights under GPL. If you ever see them distributing GNU tar, even in compliance with GPL otherwise, they never got their rights restored, so it's still a copyright infringement. As far as I know, this company, Mumble Mumble, has never distributed GNU tar since then. So this was sort of the last tar enforcement, and then came the embedded device, specifically first the wireless router. So in the spring of 2003, I started getting a ton of emails of this, about this thing called the WRT54G, which was, as far as I know, the first wireless route on the market to be based on BusyBox and Linux. And it, as it turns out, it also had glibc in it, uh, which is a GNU program, and, and copyrighted by the FSF. And so we called up Cisco, who had just, three weeks before that, bought Linksys, whole, like completely acquired Linksys, and just been approved, and they just finished the acquisition. And we called up Cisco and said, well, you're <laughs> hey, that thing you just bought, yeah, it's violating, well, one of the products lines you just bought, violating the GPL. Um, Cisco was not all that happy with Linksys, as far as I can tell, because Linksys, I presume, did not bother to tell them during the acquisition, oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, some of our products line, yeah, we violate those GPL things and infringe copyrights. Um, they didn't, I don't think, told them. Now, I was trying to negotiate privately with them. I always believe that's the right thing to do. It's always right to try to talk to somebody privately. You don't go public and admonish people until they're actually really surely bad actors. Like I've said, GPL violations are usually a mistake, just like happened with Emacs a couple days ago. It was a mistake. It was an error. It wasn't intentional. And that's usually the case even with for-profit companies, and it's best to try and work with them. The problem was it was really obvious when you got the WRT54G that it had... BusyBox and Linux and glibc, and all you had to do was like look in the firmware, and it was right there. And so obviously everybody who bought one knew, and so eventually one of those people submitted a story to Slashdot. And that's when things got really complicated, because then, I mean, Cisco, I probably to this day believes I put the story on Slashdot. I didn't, but they probably believe that still. They thought that we were trying to pull a fast one on them and get them in trouble with the public and all that, which we didn't want to do, but it was hard to hide the fact that they were violating. Um, but we did have to continue the enforcement. So we reached out when this is what we when I was at FSEF. The FSEF reached out to a lot of different people, including Eric Anderson of the BusyBox project, uh, who was at that time had just finished a major rewrite of BusyBox and was was basically the copyright holder on the overwhelming majority of, of BusyBox code. And Howard Belta, who had substantial copyrights in Linux, particularly on IP tables and the IP filtering system, which was heavily used obviously for a wireless router. And we started doing the usual thing. Now, not just on FSF's behalf, but also on behalf of these other people who had asked us to enforce on their behalf. We had this coalition. And by the way, I reference it as, that was a tongue-in-cheek thing. We did Coalition of the Willing. If you look at the dates, this was right around the time when uh, George Bush made that announcement that he had a coalition of the willing to invade Iraq. Um, this was tongue-in-cheek. Uh, somebody you know, on our staff actually wrote, took George Bush's speech and replaced it with GPL stuff. Um, and so I, it, it was, a, it was a, a, a topical joke that probably is lost at this point. But um, we have discovered eventually that, that Linksys had actually gotten the board and the original SDK from Broadcom, and they had incorporated the Broadcom board into this product and then were violating. We worked with both Broadcom and Linksys and Cisco, all three, uh, to get a source code release out there. And we basically had everything released except for the wireless drivers. The wireless driver situation is an orthogonal issue beyond the scope of this talk. I don't have to talk about it after. 
and and Broadcom argued that they couldn't release those because the FCC prohibits, and FSF agreed not to pursue it, and various other things. Again, a little bit beyond the scope of the talk, but that's basically why the wireless drivers never got released. But the neat thing that happened was the release of that source code is actually the best example of a GPL enforcement action literally creating a free software community out of whole cloth that didn't exist before. Because the OpenWRT community exists today if you go back in their SVN repository history, I think they still use SVN, they at least did at the time, you find the first check-in is that Linksys release. That's where they started from. And the outcome, though, because it took so long, it was into 2004 before it finally got resolved, um, Harold Velto was furious. He was calling me and saying, why haven't you sued them yet? Why don't you sue them? Why are you just letting them delay and delay and delay? And... Um, the FSF was just very shy about filing lawsuits. We, we felt that it, was, it would cause people to be afraid of the GPL. Remember, this was not too far after the time Microsoft had launched that big campaign saying that GPL is an un-American cancerous virus that eats up software like a Pac-Man. And I think we did a good job answering that uh, just false rhetoric. But there was this feeling that if, if you scare people away from free software, no one will adopt it. And we didn't want to do that either. We wanted to continue doing enforcement in a way that was collaborative and, and so forth. Uh, but Harold disagreed. And I think, in hindsight, Harold was right. Uh, I wish I'd listened to him at the time. Um, I'm very happy for all that he's done for not just GPL enforcement, but basically he's you know, an amazing free software hacker that works on awesome things, including GPL enforcement. But he did multiple lawsuits in Germany over his copyrights, uh, and he was extremely successful in those lawsuits getting compliance with uh, GPL. Uh, in some cases, you'll see that they court granted an injunction, that they, he didn't get them to release source code every time, uh, but they're in compliance. It's a form of compliance stopping distribution. Uh, it's not my preferred form of compliance, but it is compliance. If you're not, you're not, you're not infringing, you're not infringing because you're not distributing anymore. Um, so meanwhile, obviously, FSF was still continuing with its GPL enforcement efforts, and the embedded systems, the, sort of the SDK vendors to embedded systems really became uh, a major thing we were looking at because they all, generally speaking, adopted GCC because it was the best compiler and all these tool chains were out there that you'd buy an SDK and it would be a GCC-based tool chain with a few modifications tuned for a particular architecture. And that was the real focus of our enforcement because this, this we felt was, these are the people providing to the embedded vendor, so we should go after them. Uh, the probably most famous case, uh, or not, it wasn't a case, but the most famous enforcement action of the period was OpenTV, uh, which I'm mentioning by name because there's news articles where we talked about it publicly. We were actually almost ready to file a lawsuit against them, and we made a last discovery. We said, let's go to the public and publicly admonish them instead of filing a lawsuit. Uh, and, and actually, we public, publicly said, we, I did a news uh, interview where I said, yep, this company, OpenTV, they're violating the GPL. It appeared in the San Jose Mercury News. Um, I didn't take the calls for 48 hours to make them sweat. And then the next, that was a Thursday, the next Monday, uh, I, I, I took, I finally returned the 20 phone calls I had from them. And they said, oh, we're going to be in compliance by the end of the week. So, um, and magically, after years of trying to get them into compliance, they could magically get in compliance by the end of the week. But they were, and so that one was resolved. Uh, again, without litigation. But I want to talk about some of the challenges that we faced at FSF, and I think all the, well, all two of us uh, nonprofits that are still doing GPL enforcement still face today. We had this idea at FSF uh, in the early 2000s 
that we should fundraise for, for doing compliance certification, sort of pre-product release, certify somebody as in compliance with the GPL. Uh, and we looked, we actually did, you know, because I, I was a manager then, so, so I was like, did the budget spreadsheets and figured out what staff costs were and how many FTEs and all this corporate kind of management stuff to figure out. And we figured out we couldn't break even doing the work for anything less than about $10,000 per release of the firmware. So these are mostly embedded products we're talking about. Every time they released firmware, it cost us about 10000 to give them something that was a formal rubber stamp seal of approval. This firmware is in compliance. And it, no one, no one was willing to pay $10,000, pay the FSF 10000 per release to certify compliance. No one wanted to buy that as a service and say, we would like the Free Software Foundation to certify our products in compliance. Um, they just didn't care enough, I think because if they knew enough to know they could buy such a service, they knew enough to know that they could gamble and see if they could get away with violating. I think that's really what it came down to. So in the end, uh, I was convinced that we had to ask for money, because up until this time, uh, the FSF had never asked for money from any GPL violator, up until you know, around 2003, mid-2003, early 2004. And I want to be clear that uh, no one in the nonprofit space, at least, is getting from, rich from GPL enforcement. I'm going to talk about for-profit GPL enforcement in a minute. Um, and the thing that convinced me is I had this dinner with, uh, with the attorney I've worked with for many years, Dan Ravisher, doing GPL enforcement. I started working with him on GPL enforcement in 2001. And he asked me this question. I, I was just telling about this funding crisis. I'm like, we can't afford to do enforcement. And he said, well, who should pay for, who should pay for it? Should those who are in compliance, who are donors to FSF, corporate donors, corporate patrons of FSF, should they pay for enforcement? They're the ones complying. They're the ones doing the right thing. Should they have to pay for it? And I said, well, no, that's not fair. And they said, what about your individual donors? Should the folks who give you $120 a year in your associate membership program at FSF pay for GPL enforcement? It's like, well, well, no, of course not. We should spend their money on advocacy campaigns, other things that they would like us to do, because they didn't violate the GPL. And that... That alone convinced me that we had to charge at least our costs. And the other problem is, is they're a deterrent. Dan's argument to me on this point was, if the only penalty for violating the GPL is you have to comply with the terms of the GPL, no one will comply until you discover they're out of compliance. Because there's no deterrent. They just say, okay, I'll violate at will, and somebody will call me up one day. You know, I'll get a call from Bradley, from Brett Smith from RMS, whoever, and when I get the call, I'll come into compliance. So there has to be some deterrent, and frankly, the only thing for-profit companies understand is money. They're, that's what they are. They're money machines, they only understand money, so the, the penalty has to be money. Um, I think doing enforcement in a nonprofit it, it means accountability. You can read the Form 990s of FSF and Conservancy where enforcement is happening. You can see where the money is going, what money is coming in. We're required to publicly report that as 501c3 charity. So I think there is accountability there. And generally speaking, confidentiality about how much money an individual violator pays is usually asked for by the violator. They don't want to say how much they paid. Uh, I would generally, all things being equal, prefer to just say, yep, this company had to pay this much, this company had to pay this much, and so forth, but they are asking for confidentiality because they don't want their competitors to see it. And there's no moral imperative, I don't think, to, to say how much they're paying. So I generally, when I sign a settlement agreement on behalf of, say, Conservancy, which I do uh, relatively frequently now, uh, I generally agree to confidentiality because it's not a moral issue, in my view. Now, there is another type of enforcement that's done that asks for money. 
And this is around the proprietary licensing business model that Richard Fontana uh, talked about, uh, although he, I think, confusingly called it dual licensing, uh, but I call it proprietary licensing. And companies do this. MySQL, AB, uh, before they were bought by Sun, trailblazed this business model. They did GPL enforcement with for profit. They went around and found people using MySQL and thought up cockamamie theories about why they were violating the GPL, like you write SQL statements, therefore you're infringing the copyright of MySQL. Um, it's bizarre cockamamie theory, but they would just go and get companies to buy proprietary licenses they didn't need from MySQL because they held all the copyrights and they could relicense it under a proprietary license. Now initially you'll find, if you search hard enough, you will find even me making statements relatively in support of MySQL uh, my colleague Richard Stallman has called their business called their business model at the time quote barely legitimate unquote. Um, I think it's not even barely legitimate. Uh, looking back in hindsight, I wish I discovered how corrupt this business model is sooner. It's really an abuse of the GPL in my view, um, and I wish I'd realized that sooner. But that's I, I I don't ever want our nonprofit enforcement to be like that. That's that's my goal. Now, what? Ended up happening, to continue with this history uh, lesson, if you will, by, by mid-2006, Eric Anderson was furious because he had put a tremendous amount, many, many person years, into making BusyBox basically the most amazing configurable POSIX environment you can imagine. You can make whatever subset of POSIX, actually, it's, at this point, it's beyond POSIX, a subset of Unix-like environment that you like. Totally configurable, easily configurable. And everybody started using BusyBox for any type of embedded device because everybody wanted a Unix-like embedded device because it's what they knew how to program for. And, and you can make BusyBox as small or as big as you want depending on your memory and hard drive space. And it was just a violations haven. And Eric wanted help doing this enforcement. So Conservancy uh, was the nonprofit home of BusyBox. I have a whole other talk about how fiscal sponsors work. Some of that, uh, we got to some of that in Kat's talk uh, yesterday. Um, but basically, BusyBox is a member of the Software Freedom Conservancy and is part and under our auspices. And they asked Conservancy to provide another service, which is being their enforcement agent. Um, similar, and again, I hate this analogy, to what the MPAA does for its member companies. Um, I don't like it that it's similar to that, but it is similar. Uh, I can't, can't not say that, because uh, uh, I think it's kind of obvious. And quickly, Conservancy took over the GPL at BusyBox.net reporting email address. Uh, we had 100 violations queued relatively quickly after Eric asked Conservancy to be his enforcement agent, and now the list is continually over 100 of queued GPL enforcement actions, GPL enforcement, or GPL violations waiting for me to get to to do enforcement actions on. Um, so what happened was, because this was so prevalent, I think it was undeniable that lawsuits had to be filed in the US, that, that things were not going to change unless we started filing. Uh, and a number of people, uh, lawyers, have helped uh, Conservancy and Eric in their lawsuits. Uh, Dan and Aaron have done a lot of the work. Uh, Justin's in the room has done uh, done a good amount of work as well. Uh, more recently, uh, Karen uh, Sandler has, has also done work on this. So we've had lots of lawyers who have been willing to help. And the focus always, even though even though we're filing a lawsuit and we're litigating, uh, our focus is to settle because we want full compliance with the license, and we want it on not just BusyBox. We want it on every GPL and LGPL program, and we use the fact that they've lost their right on BusyBox to get that. We say, okay, 
You violate on BusyBox. You have no right to distribute BusyBox. We're not going to give it back to you until we see you in compliance, not just with BusyBox's copyrights, but every single person's copyright who has licensed it to you under GPL and LGPL. Now, they're not a part of this action that we're against you on, but you will have to take BusyBox out <laughs> of your product if you don't come into compliance with them because you're never going to get the rights back on BusyBox unless you do this. And we figure that the judge, it will be difficult to convince the judge to, to get us that. Um, as the judge recently said in open court to us, well, that you can ask for anything you want in settlement, what you're talking about in, uh, in, in the court is the infringement of the specific BusyBox copyrights, and, and the judge was quite right in saying that. Um, so we work really hard to settle so that we can get what really matters for the free software community, which is the, fir the firmware, source code, fully, and complete and corresponding and buildable, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And the, getting money from the court or getting an injunction, from my point of view, that's a consolation prize. If we can't get what the community really needs, well, then we want an injunction and we want a penalty and deterrent. Um, so an interesting thing happened, uh, by the way, and this is sort of the last part of the history lesson. Um, Linksys made a decision to move away from free software. And it was, it was, a, it was a strange moment. I, I had a phone call when I was at FSF still with Sherman Chu, who was the general counsel of Cisco that we've been working with all this time. And they just released the source code. Everything was out there. And so I called them up sort of to say, thank you. I said, I said, thank you for working with us. I know it's been a difficult process. I really appreciate that we've got this resolved. I'm glad you released the code. Sherman said, this process has been so disgusting to me, we're never going to use GPL software again. Click and hung up on me. And in fact, he was true to his word for the, a couple years there. Because if you go back, in, it's hard to go back in time and find old firmwares, but there was this period of time where every Linksys firmware used no GPL software at all, no LGPL software, all VxWorks based. Um, my theory was that VxWorks is extremely expensive and you can't actually make a profitable wireless router product that's only going to stay on the market for 18 months, generally speaking, uh, and use VxWorks because the licensing is so expensive. So slowly but surely, you start to see uh, GNU Linux and BusyBox Linux appear in Cisco firmwares, again in violation of the license. And finally, the Free Software Foundation got fed up and sued. There's lots of public information you can read about the lawsuit that EPS have filed against Cisco uh, with regard to the Linksys products. Um, and it, it leaves one wondering, like, why, why, is it, why was it so hard? Why did they have so much trouble coming into compliance? And that's where I want to focus the rest of the talk on. Um, in, when the violators are savvy, you can have relatively intelligent discussions. For example, when we go back to that first GPL violation, I think that was calculated by Steve Jobs. He thought, I, I know what the GPL is, and I'm going to see if I can get around it. Um, but when the violator is a little bit clueless, you get into conversations like this one. And if you wonder why I'm a little crazy, it's because I have this conversation every couple of months. Um, and, and, and it's very difficult to even get a violator to understand that there is software in their product at all, let alone software that's infringing somebody's copyright, because they think of themselves as hardware vendors. And they have an upstream who has an upstream who has an upstream sometimes. Um, and, and when they finally realize there's software in their product, they sound like Michael Scott. I, 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 don't, I, I just passed along what I got. What, how did I do anything wrong? What gives me the right not to distribute it? Um, and I, I think that there's actually some bullying going on in the industry. 
And I am fond of saying, uh, I, if, I were, if I were a police officer, as, as my former colleague, uh, actually he told me I could quote him publicly, Dave Turner, uh, Novalis, who used to work at the FSF, said that thing about he didn't like thinking like a cop. But if I were a cop, I'd be a horrible one. Because in 12 years of doing this, no one's ever turned state's evidence, at least not for me anyway. Because I say, look, I know you're upstream violated. It's pretty obvious here. You haven't told me that yet. Just tell me. Just report it as a violation. Just like my, your violation was reported to me by somebody in the community, by a user. Just report that violation to me, and, and, you're, and, you're, and you know, I'll, I'll give you immunity in some sense. I, I won't file a copyright action against you. Tell me, but you put it down on paper or on email. Say, when we got it from our upstream, they failed to give us an offer for source code, and there was no complete corresponding source code in the thing they sent us. Their answer is that. No, no, no we'll work with them. We'll, we'll, we'll get it sorted out. They won't say the upstream violated. So the upstream sit there, and frankly, I'm sure at drinks, their lawyers go out and laugh at me. Ha ha, he can't get us, because no one will report, because we bully them into not reporting. Um, and so I've never gotten a report that says this upstream, and there's a number of upstreams like that, um, that, that has violated. So, so I have no, no evidence. I mean, I, I, I have a theory, but I don't have any evidence that I can take into a court or anything like that. Now, the bigger problem, the biggest problem, with embedded device freedom is not actually getting changes. So it's not the Steve Jobs problem of Objective-C and it was actually a new improvement to GCC. Most of the BusyBox is only modified a little bit. And in fact, the BusyBox developers could probably make those modifications better than the vendors could because they're usually just you know, a couple hundred lines of changes, not very much. But the, the, there is other things that are required by the GPL. You have to be able to compile the software. You have to be able to install the software. And if once you get that all working, is the product now discontinued? They take it so hard to get it compiled and get it installed on the device that by the time you're able to do it with the source code they released, uh, that you can't even buy this product anymore. And if you do finally get that for some product that you've been enforcing, when you finally get them to give you a source code release that builds and will install onto the device in the way that the GPL requires, will they already be off to another product line, again, violating the GPL, where you have to do the whole process over with them again? And I think this is the fundamental, fundamental copyleft question in the age of embedded devices. Do you have a right to actually make use of the freedoms the GPL gives you? Can you compile the stuff? Can you install it onto the device? Can you make a great new improvement to BusyBox and actually make good use of it on the wireless router or hardware that you have? And the GPL actually knew that this was, I mean, not the GPL, it's, it's not a, it doesn't have, a, Karen's laughing at me. RMS knew this was a problem and made sure the GPL handled it. Stop laughing at me. Um, and, and he said, okay, so installing, being able to build, yeah, to, to really exercise software freedom, RMS likely said, uh, you, you have to also, you have to be able to actually do it in the real world. You have to be able to compile and install, because if you can't compile and install, software freedom is sort of a, an academic thing. You can, oh, I can read their changes in the source code. But if you really, and I can make source code modifications, but I can't actually practice them in the real world. So GPL, V2 even, was designed to handle this problem. And it says very clearly, um, and I don't have to read it off the slide, because I have an Emacs macro that expands it for the number of times I write an email, and I say it on the phone quite often to a GPL violator. You've given us the source code, but you haven't given us the scripts used to control compilation and installation of the executable. Or I might say, you've given us the scripts used to control compilation of the executable, but you haven't given us the scripts used to control installation of the executable. You must give us those. The GPL requires that. It's in its definition of complete and corresponding source code. Now, 
I think that gets us basically to what we need uh, in almost every situation that I've encountered. I have even argued that this whole debate that happened in GPLv3 was not necessary because I think scripts to control installation includes the issue of authorization keys and signed hardware and all that. I think it's embodied in those words. There's a lot read it being read into those words when you say that's part of the scripts to control installation. And I am not terribly happy that RMS decided that it was not embodied in those words, and now we pretty much have a stopple on that issue because RMS has said publicly, you do not, the GPLv2 does not require you give authorization uh, keys to put things into cryptographically locked down hardware. But GPLv3 explicitly does require that, at least for user products uh, that go to end users. And so I see this primarily as a clarification of what V2 already says in that terse language. Um, Many people disagree with me about that, uh, but certainly it's very clear in GPLv3. Now, it is true that most of the GPL enforcement I'm doing is for BusyBox, which is known to be GPLv2 only, so this doesn't come up so much, uh, but there are GPLv3 products, uh, projects that do enforcement, and this is important, and this will come up more. I think, as I said, I actually I sort of talked through this slide already. Um, I, I, um, I think that the terse wording in V2 is just clarified in V3, as I said, um, and I think it's really important that we think about this part of the issue because I think software freedom is about being able to hack your stuff. And if your stuff has an embedded device and a firmware, you ought to be able to hack your stuff and install the software and actually make use of it in a real way. And I think this is why, and I'm looking at Matthew Garrett, although he can't make this decision, projects ought to upgrade to v3 because it clarifies this issue and it's important. Um, you probably agree with me, but maybe your co-Linux developers don't. I won't put you on the spot. Uh, I wish Linux would upgrade to v3 because I think, but mainly for this issue. Um, anyway. So, um, final thing I want to talk about is what enforcement looks like today. Um, I'm continuing to do enforcement for Conservancy, primarily for BusyBox, and I get a new report pretty much once a week on average. Uh, and, and Matthew, who's in the audience, has done a tremendous amount of really interesting work looking at basically the Android device space and its violations on Linux, and some of which are on BusyBox, which I'm going to pursue on BusyBox's behalf as soon as I get some more time uh, to do that. Uh, but I really appreciate his work uh, in looking at that, analyzing that, documenting that. Uh, so, so he's one of our heroes in the compliance world. And uh, unfortunately, FSFsQ is about, Brett Smith at FSF tells me it's just about as long as conservancies. Uh, they have a long queue of violations. He's the only one at FSF working on it. I'm the only one, well, not the only one at conservancy, but uh, conservancy and FSF are the only two orgs working on it. G GPL enforcement as nonprofit endeavor. Um, I think we need constant vigilance about this issue because they are everywhere. And I feel that is my only resource, my only recourse. I just have to keep doing this. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be doing GPL enforcement the rest of my life. Uh, because I don't think there's any other option because there's so few people doing it on behalf of the community. Um, and I, I've been offering this bet for a long time. Nobody takes me up on it anymore. Uh, I did win about $60, $70 on this bet at one point, uh, but uh, nobody takes me up on it anymore because they know I'll win. Um, I'll even offer better odds than even money these days. Um, and one final note, I realized this morning as I was going my slides, there's a, a Harry Potter reason that this is a bad picture of Mad-Eye Moody to use. Uh, to talk about constant vigilance, um, so I, I will. Uh, if anyone's come after after, I'll I'll buy I'll buy you lunch if you uh, if you can point out why this is a bad this particular picture of Mad Eye Moody is a bad one to use with regard to being constantly vigilant. Uh, 
Anyway, I, I think I'm going to change that next time I give the talk. Here's some info about me and everything. Uh, if you want to follow me on social network stuff, I only use Identica, uh, but I am there as is Conservancy. There's my website. I have a blog there. Um, and that slide sources URL is deprecated, but it's if you search for Gatorius Bikun, uh, you'll find the slide sources for these. And there's where to report GPL violations, at least on BusyBox. And I forgot, I, oh shoot, I forgot to put that I do an oddcast with Karen Sandler in the audience. I forgot to put that on the slide, sorry about that. Uh, FAIF.us, Fife.us. Um, I just forgot to put it on, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs>
frankly, a very similar version to the talk uh-huh. you just heard. Uh, I, I, uh, I hope that's okay. I, I did pitch it that way to the LinuxCon people, so uh, I presume they're okay with that too, uh, because I had given this talk at a LinuxCon before and the OzCon before as well. So those are the only two speaking things I think I have. I don't have anything up. until January, so I won't. What are you doing in January? At LinuxConf Australia. Oh, that's right. You're giving a keynote, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think any of it's been announced yet, so I don't know if I should be. Uh, aggressively promoting it yet, but... Oh, uh, should we cut that out? No, there are a couple of talks that I might be giving in between, uh, but none of that is finalized yet anyway. Okay. But should but, we cut this thing out about... No, no, Are you pre-announcing fine. them? Okay. I, I think it's fine. I mean... Okay. All right, so uh, so that's... Uh, so we'll talk about that again, I'm sure. We'll have a few, quite a few more shows before then. So I'm more, I think we'll have one or two more shows before my talk's coming up, so I'll mention them again. Great. Okay. Free is in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of halfbakemedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free is in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 United States license. Thank you.